0: Order, order. Well, you still say today there's a bit of that pomp and nonsense left? And of course the hours are still not what most people would consider normal
1: working hours, are they? I think it was the biggest thing. I did campaign right from the very start, having come to Westminster. And I led both of the campaigns to change the hours. First of all with Anne Coffey and then with a slightly wider group of women from all parties the second time round. But we were utterly determined, because it wasn't only that women were suffering, the men were suffering as well, and their families were suffering terribly, but of course they wouldn't talk about it.
0: Let's go back to 1997, when suddenly, as a result of the all-women shortlist, there were 101 women, um, Labour women, with the election. Did that make a big difference to the environment here at Westminster?
1: There was, of course, a media campaign immediately, which was all about, well, they're just Blair babes, they're not adequate, and... There were many women who felt undermined by the kind of media treatment that they got. Nonetheless, most of them fought back, and so we did have a new agenda. We had issues that were not previously debated or which there'd been a great struggle to ever get on the agenda. We had the Chancellor famously saying, childcare is an economic issue. That was due to the pressure of so many women and women coming in here saying, we're going to discuss the things that are important to us. It's not that we're not interested in everything else. Of course we are. But there are some issues which Parliament has never taken seriously and we believe they should.
0: Did you feel very angry at the time? Because in, in one sense, the Blair government had come in saying, oh, we've done all this for women's equality, and yet their actions showed that they weren't really that keen on women's equality.
1: I was absolutely furious. I was furious because... I had spent 10 years in opposition, most of the time on the front bench, carrying you know, significant portfolios. I deputised for Tony many, many times when I was in his home office team. I had fully expected to be a minister and everybody I knew expected me to be a minister. And you know, I was passed over, then given this job, which I was thrilled, utterly thrilled to get. But nonetheless, it was very much um, a sort of consolation. And then uh, there I was, out again, I never quite knew what I did to deserve it, but there you go, that's politics. Did you remonstrate with Tony? I very much did. (laughs) (laughs) He began with the usual famous words, I'm really sorry, but I have to let you go, to which I said, no, you don't.
2: (laughs) Order, order. You seem to be saying really that being an MP is not good for family life anybody who decides that they're going to stand for parliament who's going to win has to be uh, be very clear that this is with the agreement of their family and that there's enough family resilience to manage it because it does place great strains and great demands but it's also the most incredible privilege and I absolutely have felt that every day that I've been here. What
0: advice would you give to any women thinking of going into Parliament now
2: about how they manage that media intrusion? And this is the advice that I was given very soon after I, I got into Parliament by a very crusty, cantankerous Deputy Chief Whip from the northeast of England who was incredibly kind to me and supportive in when I first arrived and I really valued his advice. And We were having a cup of tea together one day, and he said, very kind, he said, you're going to do very well here, and just remember to notice the people on the way up because you'll need them on the way down. Mm -hmm. And I think that the people who fail after a very promising and sometimes meteoric rise are the people who believe their own publicity... I've always thought you had to have two files all the foul things that are written about you and the letters that you get and the nice things that are written about you and if you're going to read the nice things you've also got to read the bad Um, or don't read any of them and now I tend not to read any uh, any of them at all and I just try to be guided by my own judgment because after all this time if I haven't got faith in it why should I expect anybody else to.
0: Let's talk a bit more about the nice things. What would you say is the greatest achievement of your 23 years in Parliament?
2: Well, I think two things. I think Sure Start, which, you know, I designed, got the money for, set up as an early nurture programme, which then became much more a childcare programme across the country. And the second is the Olympics, 2012 Olympic Games, which I lived with for
0: 10 years. You carried on doing the Olympics long after Tony Blair had departed and you'd lost your job at Culture, but you carried on that Olympic job and responsibility
2: right through, didn't you? Did you have to fight to do that or not? Well, I went back into the Cabinet. I did have a series of hilarious exchanges with Gordon Brown about how I wasn't really being sacked, but I wasn't actually in the cabinet. But I would attend the cabinet, but nobody would notice <laughs> the difference. And no, but he was very clear that when Tony Blair left office, that he wanted me to carry—he wanted me to carry on doing the Olympics, and I wanted to carry on doing the Olympics. And indeed, I turned down other promotion from Tony Blair because I wanted to carry on doing the Olympics.
3: Order, order.
2: Do you think that intake
3: of MPs in ninety seven, of women MPs, managed to change the environment of Westminster at all? Work life balance, any of those issues?
4: Yes, I think you know, quite significantly because those people who came in, many of them had fought for years to get here like me and therefore were quite seasoned. Some of them been trade unionists, local councillors, community activists. You know, they weren't kind of brand-shiny, new, new naive people and very often had held down responsible jobs as well and therefore did want to achieve change. I think some of the serious changes around the hours, you know, might not have come in till later on, but absolutely were driven by those women. The fact that the system... to start adapting to large numbers of women, whether that was making more toilets or actually treating us with respect was important. But one of the most lovely things we did was the smoking room here, which is no longer the smoking room, um, but a very male atmosphere full of Chesterfield settees where Nye Bevan used to plot in the 1950s. I think it symbolises who's in power. And when we came in, the smoking room was dominated by male Tory MPs who drank quite a lot of brandy uh, and smoked cigars and would sit in there in the evening and talk affairs of state. And so we determined, as women, that we would, almost like a military campaign, we would take the smoking room. And so on Tuesdays, we would gather in numbers, in force, and we would drink pink fizzy wine. And we would occasionally giggle, we would talk fashion. Or we'd talk politics and affairs of state. And we would occupy literally the centre of the smoking room. And gradually the men disappeared to the fringes and then disappeared. And when we came back this time in opposition, it was very interesting to see that room is now colonised by male Tory MPs. And I think the smoking room is a symbol. It's almost like, um, you know, the Dardanelles or something, you know, you you take uh, the the space. So we did some things which were symbolic, but we also did some really serious things around childcare, getting the nursery, that kind of thing, which was important. So you're cheerful, but you're
3: also sensing that you're being made part of a, a face of the Labour campaign, rather than the brains behind it. Do you think that
4: that's um, something that women suffered from more than men? I think there was a reshuffle after the 2001 election. I think I was probably the last person to get a phone call. It was two and a half days in. I don't think I'd been home for a wash, really. And, I, and I'd given up hope by this time, so I was just sitting in the office and... I got a call. I, I think there was some talk about making me a whip, which I rejected. And I think it's very rare for somebody to reject their first post. But I, I said to, to, to the, I think it was the chief whip, I said, look, one of the only things I can do is talk. I'm really good at talking. And you want to put me in a position where you don't get to talk? It's not the best use of my skills. And then the prime minister rang me and asked me to be a junior health minister. Yes. So just occasionally it is worthwhile kind of, you know, taking your courage and thinking can I actually say no because in politics that's quite a hard thing to do so I'm very glad I did. What's your perspective
3: on whether women have made a difference and has politics changed?
4: I think women individually have made a difference and we've had some great women you know at the top of our political system you know people like Tessa um, who've made a, a fabulous difference But Ruth Kelly, you know, but it's kind of individuals, I think. I don't think we've systematically changed the way it is. And I think politics at the top is still very male-dominated. I think the characteristics that seem to allow people to rise are still quite male characteristics. You know, and if you look at business, the the discussion is all about emotional intelligence, about building relationships, about having inclusive teams, being a leader that gets the best out of people. Will you miss this place? I think my life's been so unexpectedly exciting, exciting that the next thing that I do I think will just be you know even not even more exciting but it'll be different but still challenging and the more you learn probably I've learned so much over the last 30 years from people the chance to to put that into practice is quite good we've also bought a 45 year old VW camper van called Emily and we're going to take her traveling because we never had a gap year in our generation so that's going to be really good too we're learning French and we're we've started trying to learn the Argentine tango.
0: (laughs) Order, order. So
5: it's changed significantly in the environment of Westminster, but did the election of 101 Labour women as a result of the party adopting all-women shortlists in 1997 make a significant difference to the environment in Westminster?
6: I think it did, because I think that when I first came here you could virtually count on a couple of handfuls the number of women MPs that there were. And it was incredibly sexist. There was nothing here that provided for women MPs. And for example, you know even the toilets, you know they all had on the members only, but the members were men, they weren't for women MPs. And just things like you couldn't even buy a pair of tights here if you landed your tights on the the wooden chairs that you sit on that have got splinters in them and just wrecked the tights that you were wearing the whole time. I think when I look back on on those early years, one of the things for me was it was very difficult when our boys were down here with me and there was nowhere for them to go or nowhere for them to be and that was what led me to set up the campaign to get the family room and I remember getting virtually sworn at by the chairman of the House of Commons committee at the time which dealt with those facilities and the I remember having a meeting with one of the officers and the sergeant arms who told me well you know it wasn't a question of they had to provide a room for children to be you know if, the, if we couldn't accommodate them when we were here we shouldn't have our children here and that led to me doing the work to actually set up the, the family room was
5: it a cross-party campaign Gillian shepherd people like that
6: no it wasn't really cross-party we didn't really have very much contact at all with the women conservative mps other than on a sort of day-to-day basis of business in the house no there wasn't a lot of joint campaigning at all but I think for me, one of the issues was was that it was when we were here visiting one weekend with my grandson and we came to come into my office and it wasn't habitable because somebody had taken up the floorboards without telling me. Our eldest son basically just suddenly said, well, why don't we go to the family room? And you just realise that what you do, you don't do for your children, you do for your grandchildren.
5: That's a lovely story. You mentioned your environmental audit committee and you did indeed get to Copenhagen. That must have been a big moment for you in your career. But what do you regard as the biggest three achievements of working as a woman in Westminster, either as a, a minister on committees or party groups,
6: shadow minister? Well, in the early years when I was elected, I did a great deal of work as shadow environment and transport minister working with a whole range of people and preparing policies that we would have for an incoming Labour government, which actually included setting up the Environmental Audit Select Committee. So I think that just being there to shape policy in the hope that it would then be implemented was really a sense of what we were doing was going to make a real difference. I think then in terms of actually chairing the Environmental Audit Select Committee, it's very difficult to chart and measure what progress you make, because so much needs doing all at one and the same time. But I think it's really about maintaining that focus and refusing to let it go away and following it up at every opportunity. I think one of the things that that I felt most gratified by was that the Chartered Institute of Environmental Health Officers decided just recently to give me a lifetime award. They've only given a handful of those in the hundred plus years that they've existed. (laughs)
7: Order. Order. But there you were, almost, as you say, not expecting to be there at all. I mean, was it a shock? And, and what were sort of the worst things that actually hit you when you came to Westminster as a, as a woman?
8: The really awful experience was how dreadful a lot of the Labour MPs at the time were towards me. I mean, truly not nice. Well,
7: what, what did they do? What did well, they, they say? wouldn't speak
8: to me they, you know, it was very isolating. For instance, as a, an only MP, I didn't have a regional group. And so in the wisdom, the whips thought that I should, you know, you know Bristol was near Wales, they sh- I should go to the Welsh group to, to give you that sort of solidarity. And, and, and the Welsh group of MPs at the time voted to keep me out. And I was like but we're supposed to
7: be in the same party. Has it been what you expected when you started off? And, and, and looking back, have you, do you feel, you know, you have at least gone some way towards achieving what you maybe would have hoped to when you first became a political animal? Well, the first thing
8: I do is look back and say, where did all that time go? It's a real shock to me when I realised how long I'd been a Member of Parliament. And did I think it would last this long? No. Why didn't I think I would be a Member of Parliament this long well, I don't really know, but I didn't see it as a job that you did for a very, very long time. I've learned a lot. <laughs> and in some senses, I suppose I wish I could start again with the memory that I have now for some of the things mistakes I made. I you know, I stand by everything that I did, and it was the I thought that was the best thing at that time. I think the the one thing that I probably would say that I thought that you could build good public services, and then they would be there because everybody would value them, whether it's childcare or whatever. And we didn't do as much as we should have done. Inevitably, we look at what we didn't do. We didn't do as much as we should have done, but the main thing is that, for me, I've learned that I have to encourage others to fight the same battles again. And that's that's what democracy is. There isn't a final destination, you're always trying to reach it. And it's imperfect and we make mistakes and at any one time we do our best. And that's, that's what we can do. And my sadness is that I think that my constituents are in a worse place now and it doesn't look very good going forward, but it doesn't have to be like that.
3: Order, order. Let's go back to the beginning. What first made you decide to stand for a seat? I grew up in a very
9: political household, um, but I was always on the sort of party, um, uh, the party voluntary side. I'd done all the jobs. On the Stirling side, on the Stirling seat, it was as simple as somebody phoned me up and asked me would I put my name forward. It was an all-women's shortlist. I had been unsuccessful in two pretty public and bruising battles in Scotland. Um, before that and I had decided I wouldn't go again. I wanted then to get involved in more activity in the voluntary sector. I was the Deputy Director of the Scottish Council for voluntary organisations and I suppose if, if you're talking about careers I then saw myself as uh, continuing to be an active voluntary member of the party but I would my career would be in the voluntary sector which I thoroughly enjoyed anyway. It
3: was quite a win wasn't it?
9: It was quite a win, it was quite spectacular. I mean, um, without overplaying it, it was a bit like our Portillo night in Scotland.
3: What are the two or three most significant achievements you think you've made politically while you were here? What do you look back on most fondly? They're not
9: my particular achievements, I was part of them, I think it's fair to say. As a new MP and a backbencher, participating in the Scottish Parliament Bill, I worked very closely with Donald Dewar. I was his PPS, and I had known him for years beforehand. And that first election, I was with Donald for the election campaign out in our campaign bus, so that was that was an achievement, surviving that. The other two things that jump out at me, things that I take a bit of pride in being part of, I was one of the two ministers who took through the civil partnerships legislation in 2005, 2004, I was in the Scotland office at the time and I worked with Jackie Smith because we did it on a GB basis, the civil partnerships. And uh, so I, there obviously take some of the Scottish stuff but also some of the, we, we worked it between us. And that, that was lovely and it was lovely for all sorts of reasons, not just um, the, the sort of civil rights element of it, but listening to members of parliament charting their own journey particularly some, and I'll give credit to them, some of the members of the Conservative Party who had previously supported Section 28. And some of the speeches in that debate were just stunning, as well as some on our side were men, actually, mainly, who were gay put their own lives, and that's very difficult. So it was a privilege to be part of that. That that set the the course for the, the current gay marriage legislation. And the other element, I suppose, which jumps out at me is being in New York to sign the Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities and signing on behalf of the UK government. I had to take a charter and everything with me to show it to a member of the Secretariat at the UN, in front of the whole UN.
7: Order, order. Now, one thing that is interesting to me is that, having um, reached uh, your, your position in the in the FCO um, as a minister, you were only there for a very short time, and, and you yourself stood down. Now, no, did I didn't. Not,
10: oh, I was sacked.
7: Oh, you were sacked. Ah, <laughs> oh, right. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I, I read that you was stood down. I no. Okay. I mean, uh, was was that therefore a surprise, and was that a great disappointment? To you?
10: Um, it's. Um, as As the reshuffle went on, no, it wasn't so much of a surprise because it was a very political reshuffle um by Gordon Brown, and uh, at that point, my face didn't fit so and yes, of course, it was a disappointment uh, because I wasn't sacked because I wasn't doing a good job. I was sacked because i didn't my face didn't fit, so
7: you know that's politics, I guess sometimes yes.
10: yeah, absolutely yeah
7: so of your time in 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 parliament um what what are the things that you are most proud that you have? achieved do you feel
10: um at a sort of at a ministerial level i was the minister for women equality who brought in the civil partnership legislation which was a fantastic thing to do now that was already on on the books so i was effectively implementing it but clearly i shaped how that happened and the the narrative and uh, that government had around that, so I'm very proud of that. Uh, I also took through the legislation which established the Equality and Human Rights Act, so that was important. Um, one thing that I definitely achieved on my own, and I have the statement up there. To, uh, to yeah, so you're just pointing to a
7: rather beautiful uh, sort yeah. of glass, uh, decorated glass up there,
10: which was to persuade, as it ended up being Jack Straw, who's then leader of the House, that our legislation should be gender neutral, and so should be drafted in that way. And that actually took a couple of years to work out how to do that and to persuade people. Um, other people had wanted it to happen, but there'd been a bit of resistance. And Did,
7: did, did people feel that was almost a kind of more tri- trivial thing?
10: I don't know that people s- thought it was trivial. I think uh, I was sort of presented with really reasons for not doing it, which were not reasons. Order,
11: order. Were you in awe of it? Yes. I don't think I was in awe of the job, because I'd, I'd always been an advocate, and that's what I loved. It's my constituency work that has sustained me and given me the greatest pleasure. You know, being able to help people and being able to move people along, you know, at the next stage of, of, of their lives or whatever problem they've got, that's given me huge personal satisfaction. I think when you come here, I'm in awe because it is the mother of parliaments, it is historic, it is beautiful, it is grand, it is wonderful, and the world looks to Westminster. You know, we can't overstate that. We are. You know, Westminster has influenced parliaments across the world. So, therefore, it has this special role. I think what you're not prepared for is that you can't even rebel in this place without writing a letter and explaining it. And I think that nothing happens spontaneously here. And, and I think that's your first shock, that uh, when you explain to people that um, the people who are chosen to speak, you know, that there's a draw. Now, if you're interested in politics, you will know these things and you know how the processes work. But the great British public, a lot of them don't even go there. So when you say to them, well, it's not random who the speaker selects. You are not required to sit several hours a day in the chamber. That chamber sits for a maximum of, I think it's 30 hours a week. The other things in your Westminster life can be equally as important as being in that chamber. I talk about committee work. I talk about the people who come to lobby me, Uh, you know, chairing things like the Melanoma Task Force, getting things like the Sunbed Regulation Bill through, you know. Julie Morgan and I did that together as a private member's bill my campaign, but Julie got the draw and we worked brilliantly together. Those things can give you huge influence in Westminster and those things can give you huge, you know, personal satisfaction. I think an awful lot of the things that switch us off as women are things like the Yabu sex politics. I don't want to sit on benches and watch men make faces at each other. Are you concerned, just finally, this is the final question, about where
5: politics more generally is going? You described yourself as a feminist, how the miners' strike, if you like, ignited that feminism, because there were more of you able to speak outside the home and attend rallies. But UKIP, the rise of parties that, that really
11: would knock, or perhaps knock, that progress backwards. Yes, I am concerned, basically. I don't understand that sort of politics, I don't understand the politics of envy, I don't understand the politics where we marginalise people, where we play one section of the community off against each other. I'm not comfortable with that at all. I think we have to expose that sort of extremism wherever we see it. We have to stand up. We have to speak out against it. So I I think that that's what we have to encourage people to do. But what I do know is that there's this huge suspicion now of politicians. And I am very, very saddened by that. I didn't go into politics to become wealthy. I didn't go into politics to be better than other people. I went, I, you know, I'm, in the words of Bill Clinton, a good old-fashioned public service junkie. I think that the ultimate form of service is public service.
0: Order, order. order.